Good morning again. I would add my welcome to everyone. My name is David Green, uh, proposed retired pastor from New England, but here I am again. And uh, very thankful I got to preach while I was away. Karen and I have been away for three weeks, and it's nice to be back and uh, to be with you all here. What a joy it is to worship God together, to seek his face as one person, for there are only two people in the world, those that know the Lord Jesus and those that don't, the happy and the miserable. And by God's grace, if we've been given to understand the gospel, our condition, God's work, our hope, what joy, what joy. Let's pray before we begin this morning. Our Father and our God, how we thank you that you have appointed this means, this public means of coming together, of being called together by your Spirit to you first and then to one another so that we might hear your voice. We might tremble at it. We might realize how far we are from you and your holiness, your perfections, your glory, your joy. And yet you have stooped to us to bring us to yourself. So this morning, we pray that by your Spirit, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the Son, come and do your appointed work for this hour. Help your weak servant. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, The Christian's Greatest Privilege. And I would seek this morning, in the little time we have, to defend that statement. Because the confession that we read, as Jamie mentioned, describes the loss, the absolute absence of communion with God because of sin. All mankind, by their fall, in Adam, lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. What a terrible state. What a horrible place to be in, to not know God, to not have any communion with him or fellowship with him, to not be able to, and worse, not even want to for so many people. In fact, Scripture tells us that no one seeks after God, or as Paul mentioned to the Athenians, you've got this unknown God out here in the yard that you worship, and maybe you're groping after God. Oh, he's not far from you, but how will you find him? Well, the only way that we will find God is if he first finds us. And so in the garden, God came, and the first question was, Adam! Where are you? He didn't say his name, but it says he spoke to the man. And it's a singular you. Where are you, Adam? What's happened to you? So God comes seeking. And so there's that promise in the first 
after the first sin of God bringing reconciliation, bringing us to a place, the promise of bringing us to the place where we would know him and we could have this fellowship with him. And in the Old Testament, we see that, in fact, by God's Spirit and His grace, people had communion with God. That passage that John read for us from the Psalms, Asaph's testimony in Psalm 73, surely one of the greatest statements of personal transformation, where he says, after being envious of the wicked, I was like an animal before you, I was like a beast. And then the next words, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by the right hand. You'll bring me to glory. And then that glorious statement, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire more than you. This was Asaph long before the coming of our Lord Jesus. Christian, this morning, can you say the words with Asaph? I had rather know you. I had rather have fellowship with you than with any other. That's the goal of our conversion because that's the goal of heaven is fellowship with God. Whatever else we may be doing, and we'll have new bodies, there will be a new earth, there'll be a new heaven, but it's knowing God, it's being with God, it's being possessed by him in such a way that we cannot sin anymore, will not want to sin anymore, and we'll rejoice in him and all of his people together. That's the prospect before us. And so the model of this, of course, is in the Trinity itself. God is not a solitary person. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God defines community We don't define community. We express it as his image bearers, his creatures. God defines it. And God defines communion. Father with son, son with father, both with the spirit, spirit with them from eternity. And that's the communion that Jesus Christ came into the world to bring us. To bring us into that community, that fellowship with God, to know him. And so we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus. So even when as a 12-year-old, his parents losing him, where is he? Three days later, they find him in the temple. And his comment to them, why were you seeking me? Don't you realize I have to be in the things of my father? Don't you realize that's the priority for me as a 12-year-old? And so kids here this morning, you have friends, don't you? And you have a kind of communion with them. Uh, you may have quarrels. You may, they may move away. And you miss them. But you know what it's like. And so does everyone else. Knows what it's like to have communion, fellowship with someone. Our Lord Jesus was on the earth and he was misunderstood continually. And therefore, so much more did his relationship with his father absorb him. And so we find him constantly in prayer, leaving a meeting, a very successful meeting to go off and pray. Before he chose the 12 disciples, he spent the whole night in prayer. I've often wondered him saying, now, Father, am I really going to take on a tax collector with some fishermen? And do I have to have a man who's going to betray me? 
I, I do, because that's what the Scripture said would happen. And everything about me is in the Old Testament. It's described, it's describing my life. Or you will point me in the direction of everything that I'm to do in this life. And so the Lord Jesus Christ lived to obey the will of his Father. It was his supreme joy. So he's the model. But for us, we may say, well, Jesus was God too. So he was able to do this. And sometimes we sort of skip over his human nature and we sort of mix them together and we don't realize that he was tested in all points like as we are. As a man, God isn't tested and yet without sin. But I want us to focus this morning on someone that I have the audacity to just say to you and challenge you to check it out. And if in doing so you have questions, I would be happy to hear from you. You can write info at wallacepca.org and I would be glad to respond. We have this meeting afterwards so we can't have another confabulation to discuss this, but in my opinion, there's one person that clearly seems to have understood Jesus' mission on, on this earth. And her name was Mary. And she was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she's the special example I want us to look at this morning in three scenes. She only appears in three scenes. She says only one sentence. And yet, in her life, in what the Holy Spirit reveals to us in his word through the apostles, is sufficient, I feel, to justify this position, that there was no one who understood Jesus like Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Let's think about these three. How much do we know about them? We don't hear of a husband or wife. They were siblings. They lived in Bethany. Their property was such that they could have a tomb carved out of the rock, which typically showed some sort of position of wealth. When Lazarus dies, we find all these Jews coming the two miles from Jerusalem to Bethany to mourn with them over him. A great company of them. So much so that Seeing what Jesus did at the tomb was a major part of why he was so received triumphantly when he rode into the city very shortly after this on the donkey as king. We don't know how old they were. We don't know what they looked like as we know almost nothing about what people looked like in the Bible. How different was the Bible's emphasis than ours? We're so concerned about how we look, what we eat, what we put on, not the Bible's emphasis. So that's this family. And so we might call these three scenes that I'm going to present for us from God's word, living at the feet of Jesus. Because everywhere we find Mary, every time we find her, she's at Jesus' feet. Brothers and sisters, it's the safest place in the world, Jesus' feet. To be there, to stay there. Of course, we can't do that literally. He's not here. 
anymore. But we certainly can spiritually, and I hope to show that to you this morning. The first scene of the three scenes is in Luke chapter 10. I'll read this for us this morning. Listen as I read this section of God's Word. Now as they, the disciples, went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who having sat at the Lord's feet, was listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. So far the reading of God's word. So we have the disciples, as they were, traveling. And they come to Bethany. Um, It's not identified here, but we know that's where they lived. And so Jesus entering the house makes this scene sound like and probably proving that he knew them before. They had a relationship before. They were not, he was not just a newcomer here. He invited him to come in. He comes in. Mary seats herself at Jesus' feet and is silent. She's listening to his message. What would that message have contained? Well, we're in Luke 10 here. And beginning in Luke 9, as we find out from the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, Jesus began to talk about his necessity of suffering and dying and being raised from the dead after he was truly confessed as who he is. And that happens in Luke chapter 9. And so twice in Luke chapter 9, after Peter's confession of who Jesus is, he starts telling them what really has to happen with me as the Messiah. Shocking to them. At times they were too sad to understand. All other times they could not grasp this. Their idea of the Messiah was miles, millennia away from a suffering Messiah who would be crucified by the Romans in such shame and wretchedness, buried, and then rise again. I'm quite confident that when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, he talked about those things. And she was listening. She was not serving. And so Martha is not sitting. Martha comes rushing up and stands before Jesus to say the same words practically that the disciples did when Jesus was sleeping in the boat and it looked like they were going to drown. Don't you care that? And the predicate here is, my sister's not doing what women are supposed to do. Serve. And he doesn't, she doesn't stop there. This is Martha. Martha Martha's a take-charge person. Tell her to help me. <laughs> he gives, she gives command to Jesus. And I love the way he, he speaks to her. Martha. Martha. You remember. Abraham, Abraham. 
when he was about to plunge the knife into Isaac's heart. Moses, Moses! And the bush was on fire. How could this be? God speaking to him about deliverance of his people. And the third time, when he knew whose voice it would be, it comes, Samuel, Samuel. It's so beautiful. The tenderness of Christ with her. But then his determination that Martha too, who was a godly woman, who no doubt loved Jesus, we know this, we'll hear about it in the next scene, Martha must learn what Mary is learning. Because Mary has chosen the good part and it will never be taken away. Martha, there'll come a day when you can't serve. Martha, there'll come a day when you're sick. Martha, there's come a day when you're on your deathbed. And if you have any mind at all, you can have communion with me. That will never be taken away from you. Scene two. And before we get there, I ask this question. Among the disciples at Martha's house that day, do you think John was present? I suspect so, because remember Peter, James, and John were with Jesus almost when nobody else was. Jesus called John and his brother James Boagernes. I mean, sons of thunder. They were something else, these guys. Uh, they were the ones, John was the one that suggested that because the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus, that they call down fire from heaven and destroy them. And Jesus said to him, you don't understand what spirit you're dealing with here, John. This is different from Elijah and those poor soldiers who came out to arrest him. This is the John who, with his brother James and his mother, came to Jesus and said, may we have the seats of honor in your kingdom, sir? How did this John get to be the beloved disciple? How did John get to be called and calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved? How did John become the one who, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, son, behold your mother, handing over Mary to John's tender care? you think this incident with Mary affected John? I'll leave the question with you. Scene two. It was read for us by John earlier from John 11. It's a magnificent passage. A sort of culminating miracle of John's gospel. Lazarus is ill. He's from Bethany. And how does John identify Bethany? It's the village of Mary. Now, wait a minute, John. Luke introduced us to Martha, and it was Martha's house. But John, you're making the village, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Interesting. And this Mary, he doesn't leave it there. This is the Mary who anointed Jesus with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. That hasn't even happened yet. And John introduces it into his gospel here to show you how important this Mary was. Who has ever heard of somebody doing something like this? 
That's Mary. I want you to know who Mary is, he's saying. And it was this Mary's brother who was sick. That's all to identify Lazarus. The sisters send a message. Lord, he whom you love is sick. He whom you love. Who else identified himself as he whom you love? John. And what a tender way of saying this. How well did these sisters know Jesus? They knew him well enough to know he loved them. And so that's all they had to say. Because what had Jesus done when almost anybody appealed to him for help of whatever sort? He did it, and he did it immediately. He didn't wait. He didn't delay. He came. He spoke. He touched. And it was done. The next words we read are, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What a statement this is because it's really not made of any other individuals in the gospel in this way. Mark tells us that when the rich ruler ran up to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. We don't hear his name. But here, John is particular to name the three of them. He loved them. So how in the world can we read in the next verse that he delayed two days to leave? And then we have all this interchange that we won't deal with that you can look at later between Jesus and the disciples about this situation, including that sort of cryptic statement, if we walk in the day, we won't stumble, but those that walk in the night will fall. And I think Jesus is saying to them, Day to me is doing the Father's will, no matter what it costs. And it's the will of the Father that I delay. He is keeping me from leaving. He didn't say that overtly, but everything he did was, as I said, governed by the Old Testament direction of him as Messiah or the Lord's specific direction, the Father's specific direction to him. So he delays. He arrives, he's outside the village. Martha hears about it and comes out to see him. And she says to him what they must have said over and over and over again. It's four days since Lazarus was put in the tomb. And she says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. See your statement of faith? Martha's a woman of faith. Martha, no doubt, loved Jesus immensely. And so Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, and she again shows her faith. I know he will rise in the resurrection. She was no Sadducee. She believed that the dead would rise. She had hope. But even now I know that if you, whatever God enables you, you'll do. You can do. Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, Jesus is not saying there's not going to be a resurrection. He's saying everything that is worth being resurrected for, I am. The creator of all things. The sustainer of all things. The Lord of heaven and earth. I'm here. Do you believe this, Martha? I believe you're the Christ. The one who's coming into the world. 
What a confession of faith. Godly woman. Well, she goes back in and she calls Mary. I love what she says. She does it secretly. Mary, master's come. He's calling for you. Mary comes. She sees Jesus. And she falls at his feet. Weeping. The Jews come with her. Mary tracks this crowd. How, how did, how, however, they come with her. They're weeping. There they are at Jesus' feet. She is. And she says verbatim what Martha says. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then we, we see Jesus here. And we've been in this, one of the Sunday school classes looking at a book about Jesus' heart. If you want to see Jesus' heart in, a, in another aspect, look at this scene and what John gives us as a description of what's going on here. Literally, Jesus whinnied. That's not what he did. He didn't make a horse sound. But this verb is used to express either enormous anger or intense grief. I suspect it was both. And then the actual text says Jesus troubled himself. I get the sense that Jesus in dealing with everything that he did all the time had to steal himself, had to guard himself, had to preserve himself, his emotional life because of all the things that were going on. He is man, tended to himself. If there was ever a self-disciplined person, of course, it was perfectly done by the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, he troubles himself. If there was ever anybody that would tempt Jesus in a holy manner of love for a woman, and he would not have sinned, it was Mary. Righteous Mary, who sat at his feet, who listened to his words, and who believed them. He troubles himself. Then he weeps. And he troubles himself again. And the last part of what was read this morning was that he did so and then moved towards the tomb. Scene three. We move to the next chapter of John. Lazarus is raised. There is a festival that's going to occur, a feast, it's joyful. And here's what John writes in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, 
he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. It was so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here they are at the table, this glorious festival going on. Martha serving and not complaining. Think Martha had learned something? I think so. We can even learn from our siblings, can't we, kids? Even if it's don't do what he did or you'll get spanked or you'll, get, you'll lose your privileges. I think Martha learned from Mary. I think Mary's example was such that if you didn't learn from Mary, you were a post. Martha's serving, and here is Mary. She enters. And this incident, saints, is also recorded in Mark 14 and in Matthew 26. Mary's not named by name, but it's certainly the same incident. We find that it was at Bethany. It was at Simon the leper's house, who was apparently healed of his leprosy and may have had a larger house in Bethany than Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so that's where the festival was. And we learn also from Mark and Matthew that Mary didn't just anoint his feet. She anointed his head. She anointed his whole body with this incredibly expensive ointment. In fact, 300 denarii was a year's wages for a worker because a worker normally got one denarii per day. There's Mary pouring out her love for this Lord Jesus Christ. Bold, deliberate, shameless. It's the best communion she could possibly have without saying anything. Because what Jesus says in response to the criticism and by the way, notice that Jesus isn't criticized. None of the disciples, even Judas, said, Jesus, why are you letting her do this to you? That, that's what Simon, the tax collector, thought uh, when Luke 7, when a woman did the same thing. If this man were a prophet, he'd know that this woman, a moment of the street, has no business touching him. But no one criticizes Jesus here. They pick on Mary. This is a waste. Our Lord defends her, exonerates her. He says, I'm going to memorialize her. You don't see that here. You see it in Mark and Matthew because everywhere the Gospels preach, they're going to speak about what Mary did here. The poor you have with you always and you can help them whenever you like, but me you don't. And so what Mary is doing is she is anointing her king for burial. Isn't that an irony? No one else anointed him when he was to ride into the city as king. Behold, your king is coming, said Zechariah 9.9, riding on a donkey, lowly. Mary anoints him. Did she know he was king? I don't know. She owned him as Messiah. The Messiah was to be king. But Jesus says, she did it for my burial. She knew I was going to be buried. That means she knew I was going to die. She believed what I told her. And as painful, no doubt, as it was to her, 
She's showing what she can of her love for him and communing with him in this last moment before he's gone. Well, dear saints, how does this, what does this have to do with us? Jesus is not with us in person, but by his spirit he is. He is here. For every one of you who's a Christian this morning, he resides with you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. He knows every inclination of your heart. He wants to fellowship with you in all of that, all the time. And he's always accessible. In the middle of the night, read the Psalms. In the night watches, I'll call on you. And many of us, as we get older, don't sleep through the night anymore. And we can wake up and think about all kinds of other stuff. But we can also think about the Lord Jesus who loves us and cares for us and has brought us this far and he'll carry us all the way. And for you kids, you're never too young to talk to Jesus. Anytime. Not just when you sin and ask for forgiveness. Not when you just need help. But thank you, Lord, for my parents. Thank you, Lord, for school even. Yeah. Thank you, Lord, for work. Those jobs, they're so tough. Thank you, Lord, for the difficulties you send. You're with me. You're not away from me. You're with me. You're with me in difficult marriage situations. You're with me in difficult kids situations. You're with the Christians in Haiti who've just gone through this horrible stuff that's tearing their poor, uh, tortured country even further apart. He's with Wang Yi in prison in China. He's with all those other prisoners. He's there. They have communion with him. It's accessible to them always. It will not be taken from them. This is our privilege. Are we exercising it? Are there idols that stand in the way, even good things? Family, friends, work, service, in the place of just plain loving and spending time with Jesus. In order to have close communion with Christ, we have to spend time with him. To deepen it, we need to know him well. And what it will flourish like in our lives and blossom is shameless acts of love for him. I don't know about you, but it is so easy to talk about anything with unbelievers except coming to the gospel and who God is and what he requires and what is ahead for all unbelievers. But if we love them, if we love Christ, we will talk to them. We will want to talk to them. And I would suggest that the greatest incentive and enablement for gospel witness is close communion with Christ. You've got to share it. It's got to show. It will blossom and flourish. And give us the opportunity to see others come to know him and to love him. So, dear saints, this morning, in this short interval that we have left of our lives, however old or young we are, it's short compared to eternity. Let's draw near to God, for he's promised to draw near to us. And follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was on earth with his Father. And then imitate it in his love for his own as we love one another. Nothing could greet our new pastor with more joy 
than a congregation full of those that are communing with the Lord regularly and love one another earnestly, sacrificially, to the praise and glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the many different ways that your word, which is your voice, teaches us about who you are and what you've done and what you are doing and what you will do. We thank you that you cannot deny yourself. So when you have made such great promises of being with us and never forsaking us, and of having, dear Savior, Son of God, eternal Son of God, having taken a body to be able to come into this world to suffer and to love, to be rejected, but to persevere to the end with your own. Oh, Father, we pray that you would just, by your Spirit, give us a new sense of the privilege of being Christians in fellowship with you and with one another. And may the glory of your power to love you and love one another be exhibited in us in ways we've never imagined, but is our privilege as we wait on you and trust you. Oh, hear us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. A hymn of reflection on...